Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies! I am here for The Stone Wolves episode number 13. I am still working away on GFL book 7. It's about 70, it's over 79% done right now. It is a roller coaster ride heading towards the end of this thing. But uh, using the roller coaster metaphor, I'm just about to tip over that highest point and then come screaming down to the finish at terminal velocity. And that's about all I have to tell you this week. I hope you are gearing up for the holidays. And I hope that no matter what's going on with family, with friends, lack of family, lack of friends, that you are planning on being good to yourself. I will say it again. Be good to yourself. It's the holidays. You deserve someone to be good to you, and you got to start with you being good to you. Be nice to yourself. Any other way you want to phrase it, trust me on this one, it will help things out a lot. So let me get you caught up on the story so far, and then we're all going to go get blitzed on eggnog. Previously on The Stone Wolves, the Krakens won which led Killian and Beans into a celebratory drinking frenzy. The morning after, there is a price to be paid. Now, the crew of the Oleron must prepare for the dangerous jump into Craterachian space, also known as Bat Country. Chapter 11. Hangover. Killian Carbonaro opened one eye. Doing so made his head hurt. Oh, high one. He'd over-celebrated, and his penance had only just begun. At least his cramped cabin was dark. He didn't remember coming back here and going to bed. Had he done so on his own power, or had Beans donned the Schmeck suit and carried him here? No, Beans had been just as drunk. Killian could tell This was going to be one beast of a hangover, but it was worth it. He'd watched his son's team win a second straight Galaxy Bowl. The news I had gathered at the last punch-out included reports of the terrorist attack on the Kraken's team bus, the touchback. Was Quentin the target? If so, had Killian's old enemies learned about the boy and decided that if they couldn't get the killer, they could get his son? Or had Quentin earned enemies of his own? along the way. That did seem to be a Carbonaro tradition, and despite the changed last name, the boy was a Carbonaro. The team was owned by a gangster, after all. Maybe the bomb hadn't been meant for Quentin. Even if it had, there was nothing Killian could do, not without the risk of actually drawing old enemies toward the boy. Quentin was on his own, as he'd been almost before he could walk. Threats aside, Killian couldn't be more proud of his son. He was proud of every snap the boy took, every throw the boy made, every yard the boy gained. Watching Quentin win his first Galaxy Bowl had been magical. The second? The second was something far greater. Quentin's physical dominance at the quarterback position was a given. He was a star 
among stars. For his second title, however, he'd taken on a different role. He'd played fullback. He'd blocked for his running back and his quarterback. He'd taken a hell of a beating and kept coming. On the last play, with a shucking broken collarbone, he'd filled in at linebacker, sacked Don Pine, and caused a game-closing fumble. Quentin Barnes had entered the GFL as an arrogant nationalite, a man spoiled by ridiculous physical gifts. In his five-year run with the Krakens, the boy had changed. He'd grown as a person. He'd become the ultimate team player. He'd become selfless. Such a glorious transformation. A transformation Killian had had nothing to do with. He'd watched it from afar. He'd been there for none of it. Hangovers came and went. The guilt never left. Oh, high one, he said. Can't I just let myself enjoy something pure for a few shocking minutes? A rhetorical question to which he already knew the answer. Why should he ever enjoy anything? He had abandoned his family. He'd done so to save their lives. To save them from torture, from horrible deaths. Had it worked? He would never know for sure. Constance was dead. Quincy was dead. Even if Janine was still alive, Killian knew she'd never want to see him. Janine had been the oldest, had borne the brunt of Killian's rage issues, his uncontrollable temper. Janine had run away at 11 years old. She'd looked 17 years old and acted like she was even older than that, but still, 11 years old. Odds were that she, too, was dead. Only Quentin survived. Maybe Constance and Quincy had lived longer than they would have if Killian hadn't stayed away or if he'd risked their lives by going back to get them. Killian would never know. He'd had no choice. He told himself that every day, a dozen times a day. No choice. Because of Druge Thorne. A tiny, distant spark of rage bubbled up through the growing hangover. Killian felt his subdermal tats flicker, felt the red rising. He reached down to the side of his bed, knowing that if he had returned to his cabin on his own power, he would have brought his cooler with him. Sure enough, there it was. He opened it, pulled out a bottle. Water dripped down on him. The cooler's ice had melted. He twisted off the cap, took a swig of the room-temperature beer. Hair of the dog, right? Lights, one quarter. The cabin lights reduced the darkness. Even that dim bit of illumination drove through his eyes, danced a new Rodina shuffle on his brain. Killian squinted one eye, took aim at a glass bowl on the floor a few feet away. He flicked the bottle cap. It landed inside with a satisfying clink. There were many bottle caps in the bowl. Too many, if he was being honest with himself. He was not in the mood to be honest with himself. What he was in the mood for was self-medication. Speaking of which, he knew all too well what would happen if he let that spark of rage smolder untended. He sat up, the movement adding a Texas two-step to the dance party going down in his head. He reached into his pants pocket, pulled out a small plastic bottle, half-filled with blue pills. Nasdor. He was supposed to take two. He thought about his wife's suicide 
how she burned herself alive to protect her children from Thorn. He thought of his nine-year-old son hanging from a noose for the crime of stealing bread. He thought of his daughter, who had run away from home while he was gone. She'd never been heard from again. He thought of recoil. He thought of lulls. Killian took three pills, washed them down with beer. The drugs might keep the red monster shackled, but they couldn't keep his own damn thoughts from turning on him, sinking their fangs into him, making him sick with regret. So many mistakes. Skipper, are you awake? Zan's voice on the speaker film. We are punching out. She seems so loud. Had someone cranked the volume? I'm awake. Thank you. He should be on the bridge for this, but the crew had handled many punches without him many times. For the same reason, he had to admit that they would handle this one without him. He stretched out an arm, pulled over his trash bin, just in case. Killian closed his eyes. The Oleron and everything aboard it phased back into real space, a phenomenon some called the Shimmer. Killian felt his gore rising. It was 50-50 if he'd throw up. He'd punched in and out thousands of times over his various careers, yet still the Shimmer made him queasy. Slowly, he opened one eye, making sure that reality looked real. It did. Punch out at Rieger 2 successful, Zan said. We are in normal space. Killian turned the beer bottle in his hands. And the data cube? I wiped it clean, but I left the tracker intact. We put it on a punch beacon and sent it back toward Neptune. Smart. If the sisters or the Craterachians, or both, were still after the Oleron, they'd likely be searching the punch points within reach of Lopu. Neptune was obviously one of those spots. Detecting the data cube tracker there would slow down search efforts as the sisters or the bats looked around the soul system. It wouldn't slow them down much, but in the game of running from enemies, every bit of found time mattered. How long till we punched it quith? Perhaps an hour, Zan said. Killian rubbed at his temples. What's the point of a double punch drive if we can't go right now? Because repeated double punches put strains on the ship, Zan said, loudly. I'm well aware of the strain, Zan. Then you are also aware we need to run multiple systems checks to prepare for the next one. If you want to leave sooner, then I suggest you come to the bridge and help. Zan was the XO, yet more often than not, she gave the orders. Maybe because Killian was drunk more often than not. He didn't want to leave his cabin. Seeing Quentin attain such heights, knowing that it was yet one more moment Killian couldn't experience with his son, it was too much. But he was the captain. He had duties. I'll be right there. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, 
It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Aya knew she was smart. Next level smart. The 1% of the 1% smart. As smart as she was, though, the math of punch space was way, way beyond her cognitive abilities. Some said you needed to be simultaneously smarter than a god and madder than a hatter, that processing how the punch space actually worked required one to have a brain that could process certain streams of thought that sane people couldn't even conceptualize. Could she program a punch drive route? Sure. It wasn't easy, but she could do it. As well as Zan could? No, but in a pinch, Aya could do the calcs to get from one gravity well to the next. Some describe the phenomenon of punch space as being, quote, a speck or three outside of reality, end quote, which, not coincidentally, was a song by the 26th century blood folk band Harvest of Tentacles and was covered a century later by Trench Warfare, giving the latter band their first ever number one song, but it was one of the few T-dub tracks I didn't like. At the surface level, the concept was straightforward enough. Every mass in the universe warped the space-time around it. The bigger the mass, the bigger the warping effect. A planetary mass within certain size tolerances, not too big, not too small, had a certain warping impact, what some brainy types described as a resonant frequency. If two such Goldilocks masses were within a certain range of each other, punch technology could create a space-time channel between them, not all that different from, say, jamming each end of a giant straw into a giant peach. If the peach pit were the mass and the peach flesh were a huge area of space around the mass. Punch engines surrounded ships with a kind of bubble that moves through this fabricated space-time connection. In effect, the bubble passes through the straw at speeds that day-to-day physics established were completely and utterly impossible. What was weird 
was that somehow the bubble moved through space and time at that wacky fast speed, but the ship wasn't moving at all. The space around it was. The bubble could burst within the fleshy area, and when it did, the ship blinked back into relativistic space, appearing as if it had been there all along. No brain-splattering inertia added by the impossible journey. Whatever speed the ship was traveling when it entered punch space, that was the speed the ship was traveling when it came out of punch space. The bubble's burst gave off a corresponding burst of energy that was impossible to hide or even mitigate. An impossibility that was still impossible, unlike the old-timey impossibility of faster-than-light travel, which was so possible it was a normal part of everyday life. When you came out of punch space, sentience knew you were there. There was no way around it. And that was why Aya was at Zan Station on the bridge, realizing she hadn't considered all the angles, trying to better understand exactly what she'd gotten herself into. But Big Rock is in bat country, Aya said. As soon as we punch out, the bats will know we're there, right? Zan had swapped out the stuffed yellow elephant for an orange plush skyhopper, a herd animal, on gas giants. While the real-life animals were hideous, a kind of floating jellyfish with teeth, Aya thought the toy version was actually kind of cute. Of course they will detect a ship bursting out of punch space, Zan said, her skyhopper head looking down at her nav interface. That is a stupid question coming from one with your level of intelligence. Aya felt her face flush, partially from embarrassment, partially from anger. Did Zan always have to be such a jerk? You guys have done this smuggling thing for years. I haven't, Aya said. If my life is on the line, then I expect you to have the common courtesy to answer a few questions. The skyhopper had looked up, turned toward Aya. Aya didn't know if Zan did that purely as an affectation or if she somehow connected her optics to the googly eyes of each stuffed animal. I see you have some backbone after all, Zan said. I will answer your question, but do not assume that this will become a habit. I expect you to ask, listen, learn, and not ask the same question twice. Such a jerk. Aya nodded. The data cube Finaka provided contains a pair of Imperial IFF codes for small freighters, Zan said. We will be using one of those when we punch in. If all goes well, the Kretorakians will not give us a second glance as we go on our way. IFF. Identify friend or foe. Aya should have been the one analyzing the info on the data cube, but Zan had taken that responsibility away from her. Aya couldn't really complain about that. She'd missed the tracker, which had almost got everyone killed. What if they do give us a second glance? What if they come after us? Then it would not be the first time we have fled from the authorities, Zan said. Besides the twin punch drive, the Oleron has some special abilities you have not yet been told about. We have three ways of avoiding conflict. The first is that the Oleron's acceleration rate is higher than any ship of our class and most ships in general. Aside from military craft specifically designed for rapid assault, we 
can outrun almost anything. System police vessels included. I had known the ship was fast, but that fast? Impressive. That's a pretty big advantage, she said. How did the Oleron wind up with impulse engines that good? Beans and I collaborated on the design. While I am nowhere near his equal, once upon a time, I was an engineer of significant accomplishments. Apex, I said. What kind of engineering accomplishments? The orange skyhopper stared out, emotionless. The second conflict avoidance method is my ability to electronically make the Oleron look like other registered vessels, Zan said. Even in the most out-of-the-way places in the galaxy, there is still regular ship traffic. If we keep our distance and broadcast the false ID, we blend in with that traffic. And rarely does anyone pay attention to us. I nodded, decided not to mention the fact that Zan had completely ignored her question. Whatever Zan's past, something real, real bad had happened. With something she designed as an engineer? It didn't matter. I knew Zan wouldn't accept her, no matter what. The weirdo, hiding in hole two, didn't want to share her story? She didn't trust Aya? Fine. What? Ever. I've seen you do the fake ID thing, Aya said. What's the third technique? The orange skyhopper again looked down at the nav interface. Mismatched Schmeckhands went back to work. The third method is the least preferable, Zan said. Skipper calls it going cold. Beans invented an absorption coating that covers the hull. Any wave that hits the Oleron does not bounce off. By going cold, we had the ability to be nearly undetectable. Well, now Zan was just making things up. But we've been detected plenty of times, Aya said. I know the ship shows up on radar, lidar, and everything else. The ship does not show up, but the retractable plates around the ship do. Beans and I engineered a thin exoskeleton that quickly tucks away into recessed housings. When we are pretending to be another ship, or even being the actual Olrun on a registered flight, we want to show up on ship detection systems, because we want to look normal. In certain instances, however, we want to be as hidden as possible. We retract the plates at the right time. If luck holds, we remain undetected. The Oleron is not invisible. We can still be seen with naked eyes or any optics, but we give off little reflection to electromagnetic transmitters. Military-grade stuff, and advanced militaries at that. I wondered if there was any other donkey-class ship out there with this kind of tech. Radiation-absorbing material, Aya said. Fancy, but the ship is still emitting radiation from any electronics, even shielded ones, or from thrusters, or just basic heat from our systems and our bodies. A long metal finger moved an icon from left to right. That is why Skipper calls it going cold, Zan said. We shut down all systems, power plant, drives, life support, everything. I stared wondering if it was a joke. Life support? You cut off life support? 
hold for has enough air to last just over a standard day, Zan said. But we would freeze to death before that air is used up. Hold for is double insulated, enough to hide our body heat. From the outside, the ship will be the same temperature as the space around it, giving off no thermal radiation. Within 12 hours, however, Hold 4 will reach that same exterior temperature. As all of our power is shut off, the ship cannot flee. Where we go cold, we stay until those searching for us leave or we have no choice left but to activate systems and fight our way free. Going cold. That's what Aya's insides were doing. A starship with no power, just drifting, while its occupants slowly froze to death? But we'd wear exosuits, I said. Right? The skipper does not believe in them for this purpose. Every suit has electronics of one form or another. Every single use of electronics, even an air processor, cycling on to clear out CO2, could emit a signal that might leak out, revealing our location. No suits? This was madness. Uh, then how the hell do we stay warm? Blankets, Zan said. Sheer Bakuna Apex madness. Have you gone cold before? Twice, Zan said. And as we are still here having this conversation, you see that it worked. We were fortunate. I certainly hope we do not have to do it again. Now, Aya, return to your station and to your duties. Plotting our course is no small matter, and I must concentrate. Aya nodded, mumbled the thanks, and shuffled off to her calm skins. Her ability to plan intricately complex ops flourished when she was planning for other people, almost as if it were a game. The people were pieces, and she needed to find the best possible strategy. When it came to herself, though, she had blind spots. Big ones. She'd always wanted to get better at that. Apparently, she had not. As the old saying went, more often than not, she didn't know what she didn't know. Next time a vote came up, she needed to ask more questions before she cast her ballot. A lot more questions. Sitting in his command chair, Killian glanced around, appreciating the dim, dinged, dingy space. Maybe the bridge needed new overhead lights and a new coat of paint. And most definitely, some air freshener. But it was his. No, not his, really. Aya at her comskins. Beans working on the punch drives. Zan physically in her quarters, her schmeck at the nav station. The Oleron was all of theirs. It was home. Home. That word was a joke. What had happened to the home of his wife and children? Druge Thorn. That's what happened. Killian shook off the thought. No time for that now. Fanaka Tolvaj stood near his chair, silently watching the crew work. Her watchbots scurried about the bridge, inspecting computer consoles and cataloging maintenance terminals. It spotted one of Beans's wall holes and scurried inside it. 
No way, Fanaka, Killian said. Get that thing back here. Oh, come on, killer. Peaches is curious. I don't care. You promised it would stay with you. I don't want that machine running around my ship unsupervised. Fanaka frowned as if hurt. Still don't trust me? Very well. She uttered a command in the key language, and the spider-like bot crawled back out of the hole. It scurried up her sleeve, perched on her shoulder. Killian toggled the switch on his armrest, activating the in-ship comm. Beans, how's it coming? Punch drive to two is purring like a Chichana saber cat, came the reply. I need another hour to complete my analysis. Then I need 20 minutes to suit up and go exo to check the underside damage we suffered at Uzo Men. Hi, one. Killian had forgotten about that. I need it done faster, he said. Can you keep working on the drive and remote pilot your schmeck outside to check the damage? Beans loved to be inside his schmecks, loved to pretend he was big and bad, but he could also operate his schmecks remotely. It was another of the Sklorno's many gifts. He could operate damn near any machine from a distance. All he needed was access to the machine's CPU. If I go remote, I can do it in 15 minutes, Beans said. The little Sklorno had partied just as hard as Killian had, but seemed to show no ill effects no sign of a hangover. He rarely did, a condition that Killian envied. Beans, there is a bonus bottle of junky gin if you get it done in ten. Good Goldman! I'm on it, Skipper! Killian rose, moved to Zan's station. Her walking schmeck stood there, metal hands adjusting various controls, a star chart displayed in her holotank. Her orange skyhopper head bothered him. Nothing! could make that animal look cute, not even plush orange fur. We are on schedule, Schmeckzan said. I have been studying our options while you were sleeping. And before you were sleeping, while you and the others watched that silly athletic contest. That was Zan. Never miss a chance to chide someone for doing something other than work. Back in bad country, Killian said. Been a while since we've done that. Dangerous stuff. Zan said nothing. That was also like her. When someone said something so blatantly obvious, she rarely reacted. It's not that dangerous, Fanaka said. The data cube had two IFF codes for Imperial freighters. I assume this crew is competent enough to use one of those codes correctly? Did Fanaka really think that little bit of subterfuge meant the mission wasn't dangerous? You're living in the past, Killian said. My crew isn't the Krizatu, and the Oleran isn't a warship. If your codes don't check out, we're going to be in a world of trouble. And that doesn't even count the fact that even if they do work out, we have to break in to an Imperial prison. Fanaka waved a hand as if Killian fearing bat forces deep in Kretorakian space was akin to being scared of his own shadow. But he wasn't overreacting. Six Isaacs, possibly more, exact types unknown, but all Isaacs were small, fast, nimble dealers of death, a cargo ship's nightmare. And there was the possibility of warships nearby, 
corvettes, frigates, maybe even a damn destroyer? Even worse, the borehole was in the quiescence, which meant the only way to detect the Isaacs, or a possible warship, was by visual alone. The Oleron wouldn't know if a warship was in range until they saw it, at which point said crew's collective goose was as good as cooked. We have to assume the IFF code is bad, Killian said. We need a backup false identifier. I am working on one, Zan said. The borehole's core computing system is a Nemeric. I have encountered those before. Sometimes I have fooled them, sometimes not. Aya looked up from her station. Did you say a Nemeric? She asked the question tentatively, with a soft voice that wasn't normal for her. Aya was in Zan's doghouse, and she knew it. Generating false ship IDs and ghost signals was Aya's job in the first place. The fact that Zan was doing it instead showed how angry she was with Aya's tracker screw-up. Yes, I did say Nemeric, Schmeck Zan said. You heard me just fine, Aya. If you are going to speak up, do so with more confidence, or do not speak up at all. According to the Datacube's information, the borehole's control system is a Nemeric, the Yinnerton variant, installed about 20 years ago. Aya smiled. Then we might be in luck. When I was in the... She trailed off, glanced at Fanaka, then looked back to the orange skyhopper. When I was in my old job, I trained on a Nemeric suite for a long time. Aya hadn't told the crew about her past. When she was ready, she would. But Killian had served with thousands of sentients, and he didn't need to see Aya's service record to make an educated guess about her expertise. Comms, of course, but wrapped up in signals intelligence work and ops planning. High-level stuff. The League didn't send death squads into foreign territory unless the target was of high value or knew too much. Aya was the latter. Our lucky day, Fanaka said. Zan, can Aya look at the data to see what's what? Maybe she can help us find a way in. Aya bit her lip, waiting. The young woman wanted so badly to prove herself. Killian wanted her in the crew permanently, but if Zan didn't approve, Aya would be out. That was the deal. Of course, Zan said. But I will double-check all of your work, Aya, so do not cut corners. And I had better see notes, meticulous notes. Aya smiled and nodded. You got it, your navigatorist. Beans' shrill voice ripped across the speaker film. Ready to punch to quith. Give me that bottle, Skipper. Killian looked at the time readout on the main holotank. The deal was ten minutes, Killian said. You did it in ten minutes and fourteen seconds. Sorry. The speaker film emitted a long string of Sklorno curses. Killian understood none of it. Wow, Fanaka said. I haven't heard a mouth that filthy since Lulz was recovering in the Drenuk Mountains. Killian returned to his command chair. Zan, coordinates locked? Yes, Skipper. Let's get this show on the road, he said.
and pulled his bucket from under his command chair. Take us there. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler. Engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.